Chris is uh, gifted, that, that balancing act there. Good morning, everybody, with, with that. Let's, oh, yeah, he's, he's a pro at this. Let's dive right in, shall we? We're back in Romans chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 21. Follow along with me on the screen. But now apart from the law of the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Jesus, we greet you this morning. Lord, come. We ask that you bring freedom, that you bring joy, that you bring delight to our hearts this morning. God, thank you that already through worship you are turning our attention to you. And God, as we gaze upon you this morning, would you speak? Would you fill us afresh? Would you fill us anew today, God? Lord, we hunger and thirst for the living God. Where can we go and meet with him? Praise be to God that you are here and wanting to meet with us today. Come, Lord Jesus, speak, for we are listening. In your name we pray. Amen. I think it's safe to say that we are in an era of live action remakes. And Disney is killing the game. My goodness. Little Mermaid, Lion King, we got Aladdin, like all the hits are coming out. And for me personally, I am holding out on my favorite, Hercules. I, I, I love Hercules. If you haven't seen Hercules, please, after today, go home, go on your Disney Plus account, go on your cousin's Disney Plus account. I know somebody has it. Go on there, watch Hercules. Phenomenal. I'm going to give you a little spoiler. My, my favorite part of the movie is when we, we get into Hercules' life and we find him as a teenager. He is skinny, scrawny, awkward, in the thick of puberty, and also has super strength just to make it all the more weird, right? And he's, like, trying to be helpful. He's destroying Greece. You know, like, it, like he just can't figure out how to manage strength, feels like he just doesn't belong where he's at. And then there's one day where he discovers that he's actually adopted. The people who've been raising him are not his birth parents. His mind is blown. And to top it off, he discovers that he is the son of Zeus, right? That he himself is a god and the son of a god. And unfortunately, as a baby, Hercules was separated from Mount Olympus. And he lost his rightful place in Mount Olympus, his rightful place as a god. 
And the only way to get back, his father Zeus tells him, is that he needs to prove himself to be a hero. If you just prove yourself, uh, Hercules, to be a hero, if you become heroic, then you'll find your way back to Olympus. And he sings this triumphant song, I'll be there someday, right? Like, <laughs> go, go home and watch it. I, you're going to run a mile after that. Like, you're going to be so encouraged. You're going to do everything. So that's what Hercules does, right? He spends the rest of his days living as a hero, performing heroic task after heroic task in an effort to win his place back in Mount Olympus. Now, we may not be gods, but maybe you can relate with Hercules and his story. Scripture says that you and I are considered children of God. And we've been learning through the book of Romans so far that there is, in fact, a gap. There is a separation between us and God because of sin. And the temptation for all of us that Paul is drawing on is that we are tempted to close the gap ourselves, like Hercules, through our own heroic actions. By proving ourselves over and over again to be worthy to win our place back to God. Maybe this comes out for you in the, in the sense of overactivity or overperforming. Maybe you found yourself recently working pl- past your, your clock out time in an effort to prove yourself worthy to your boss or to your superiors. Like, I, I deserve that position. I, I, I'm worthy to be promoted. Or maybe as Paul has been pointing out for us, we walk around with a feeling of superiority and judgment over others. As we dive back into Romans 3 today... Uh, we're going to see it in a different light. So far, we've been approaching Romans from the lens of the religious folk, which, which we should, right? That word is appropriate for us. If we find ourselves in this room this morning, we're most likely religious folk, and we need to hear the reminders that Paul is giving. But today, we're going to consider another people group that Paul is addressing, the Gentiles of that time. And we're going to see what the word God has for them, and in turn, what the word God has for us this morning. And here's the good news for us today. If we are coming in weary and burdened from having to prove ourselves over and over again, here's what the scripture is going to tell us. That we actually don't need to strive to prove that we're good enough or that we're righteous enough. The goal is not to do more or to be more religious, but just as we are Gentiles and all, we get to live from a place of faith, acceptance, redemption, and righteousness. So as we dive in, Paul continues his argument from the previous two chapters. As a recap, in chapter 1, we see Paul confront the Gentiles and the ways they've handed themselves over to sinful pleasures, exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped the created things rather than the creator. In chapter 2, Paul now confronts the Jews particularly on the way that they pass judgment on the Gentiles. He, he checks them. He says, if you're preaching against stealing, are you also stealing? If you're preaching against adultery, are, are you also being unfaithful? And so Paul confronts the hypocrisy and the double standards that religious folks use to justify themselves and feel superior to others. And Paul ends the chapter by saying what it really means to be a Jew is not simply abiding in religious practices such as circumcision, but it's actually about an inward circumcision of the heart that defines the follower of God. And here in chapter 3, Paul culminates those two chapters of arguing and, uh, concerning both people groups, and he says this in verse 9. He says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. 
For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Now, if you were a Jewish person reading this at this time, you'd be like, what did Paul just say? Right? Like Paul, Paul makes a borderline insulting claim here. He likens the Jews and the Gentiles and says that both of them are alike under the power of sin. In verse 22, he goes as far to say that there's even no difference between them. All have fallen, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, why would this be insulting? Paul is speaking to folks that are steeped in history and tradition and customs, and they take a great deal of pride in that. God first chose Abraham, made covenant with him and his descendants, and they were the very first to be given the promise of God. They were the first to be given the word of God and had generations worth of knowing, of rehearsing the scriptures, of of knowing the law and hearing God's voice. Their faith completely rested in their history and tradition. And Paul, knowing all this history, being a Jew himself, says, hey, actually, we're on the same level with the Gentiles. We, too, are under the power of sin. We, too, fall short of the glory of God. So Paul likens this people group steeped in history and tradition to a group that is just being adopted in, comes from a vast array of traditions and pagan practices, and has zero knowledge of the scriptures. If you've ever spent any time in an amusement park, you know the pain of standing, of sweating, uh, of just being in line for hours on end, waiting for 45 seconds of thrill, <laughs> just to go back online for hours on end and do it all over again. And imagine you're standing on this line. You're like, I'm almost there. I've made it. I've paid my dues. I've stayed here five hours for King Daka. And then these fast pass people walk right past you. No waiting, no torture. These, these people who, have, who know nothing of the history of this line, they have no knowledge of the pain and suffering that we've endured in waiting. They have the audacity to come skip the line and ride this ride with us? No. Get to the back, right? Like, I, I put in the work. I put in the hours. Imagine what the Jewish community is feeling like when, when the Gentiles are being adopted in, like, we put in the work. These people are now skipping ahead and, and, and trying to jump in and ride this ride with us? No. Now, imagine with me for a second what the Gentiles must be feeling like. On the opposite side of that, knowing that they're being judged, knowing that they're being looked down upon, knowing that we didn't earn this. We, we have no stake. We have no claim. We have no history with this God. Yet for some reason, he invites us in and calls us his children. Completely unearned, completely unmerited. And they're being equated with a people group that seems way better than they are. That seems like they have so much more knowledge they are. Can you imagine with me the veil that is dropping real time for the Gentiles as they realize, my goodness, God is equating us with this people group steeped in religion, steeped in, in all this knowledge. Now, I remember in high school, um, I was taking an AP chemistry class. Um, if, if you don't know what, what AP is, AP is advanced placement classes that you can take in high school uh, that actually count towards college credits. So the way it works is that at the end of the year, you take an exam graded from 1 
to five. One, you know, being unacceptable, you failed. No, one, one, one being the lowest and five being the highest. Now, most colleges will only accept a four or a five, right? Anything below won't give you any college credit. The year that I took the AP chemistry exam, that year the exam was so difficult that every student in Nassau County, I'm talking every single student, got either a one or a two. We all failed unanimously. It was so hard. This is a true story. The AP board even issued an apology saying, like, we are sorry that we made the exam so difficult. But then they started to sing a different tune the following week. The next week, we're starting to see on the AP board website, like, a picture of of one of our classmates, uh, Sean. He's, like, on there. And then they send him a plaque. Like, the principal comes in one day with a plaque to the AP classroom and say, hey, this is for Sean. Um, And he's on the school newspaper. He's on the Nassau County newspaper. And he's being celebrated as the only kid in all of Nassau County that passed the AP exam. And they're throwing this guy a parade. Like, it's like, this is our pride and joy, Sean. Like, he won everything. And we're like, oh, my God, Oprah Winfrey's going to come in now. Alan's going to put him on the show. Bill Gates is going to sign up for an internship. And we all feel miserable. We're like, wow, we're dumb. Like, you know, like, this kid is the greatest. He, he did what we couldn't do. We felt miserable. We were comparing our failures to his success. And it was, if I could be honest, it was killing me. I, I, I had too much pride. I was like, this is crazy. You cheated. Sean, what did you do? <laughs> Tell me, like, what, what did you do? How, how, how did you get a five, right? Like, how'd you, how'd you succeed in that? And this is private information, right? This is not public. I'm serious. So he, he confided in me and goes, Doug, I actually got a three. So, exactly. That, that part was conveniently left out. None of the newspapers, nobody was sharing his grade. Um, that part was actually left out. He got a score that most colleges, especially the college that he was going to, would not accept. Even though he was making headlines, he received a plaque, we were making a parade, a big noise about it, he still failed. And all that work, all that celebration would not be accepted. He was just like us. He too fell short of the glory of the standard of AP board. (laughs) We were on the same boat. You know, and, and I wonder how many of us actually fall into that same comparison trap where we see people in life that they, they just seem to be getting ahead. They, they just seem more successful than we are. It looks like they have everything lined up. And, and we can compare in our job positions, our, our, our salaries. We can compare the clothes we wear, our body image, our, our relationship status. We can compare and look at others. Or even in our spiritual life, if we hear like, oh, my gosh, this person prays like 50 times a day. They read 10 like, chapters of scripture. And, and we feel less than, right? Like we, we lift these people up while simultaneously putting ourselves down. Saying like, I, I'm, not, I'm not like that person. I'm not as good. And I think we've seen this backfire on us as a church community as we lifted up pastors in the past, as we lifted up role models only to painfully be reminded that they too fall short of the glory of God. What would happen to your comparison in your sense of worth if you realize that everyone, whether they receive the plaque, whether they drive an Escalade, whether they read 10 chapters of Scripture a day, everyone falls short of the glory 
of God. Everyone is broken. All of us have sinned. We're all on the same playing field. You know, and I think this is the source of striving for some of us. The source of of wanting to prove ourselves and carry on our own sense of righteousness. Maybe you're trying to take away some of the shame that you're carrying. Maybe you're trying to take away some of the insecurities that you feel. And, And like Hercules, if I just work hard enough, if I just prove myself worthy, if I can go the distance, maybe all this insecurity will go away. Maybe all this shame will go away. We're trying to keep up with others who we think are way ahead and miss out on the fact that they're broken just like us. If this resonates with you, I want to let you know that there is freedom for you today. Jesus is inviting you to a new way to relate with him and others. And we're going to have time to respond and engage around that word in a second. But I I want us to hold on to that, this feeling of insecurity, this feeling of not good enough. And let's keep reading and see the ways that Jesus is freeing us from this trap of striving and comparing. We'll jump back into verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The true righteousness whose name is Jesus Christ has been revealed and made known to us. And I love how John 1 puts it. He says that the word of God has become flesh and dwells among us. And there are some versions that say that the word of God has tabernacled among us. The the word of God has moved into the neighborhood, has become real and tangible. The righteousness of God that you and I could never attain has come in the form of Jesus. And he's he's been made known apart from our own actions, apart from our own merits, apart from our own deserving. And what has he done for both of these groups? Because both Jews and Gentiles alike have fallen and have sinned. Since God is just, all that sin demands a payment. Jesus fulfills the demand of the law and the price of sin. We believe that he is the only one who is righteous and the only one that could satisfy the wrath of God that our sin calls for. And it's at the cross where Jesus pays the penalty of sin and takes upon the weight of our shortcomings. And in exchange, what does Jesus do? Instead of shaming us, instead of scolding us, instead of asking why we didn't measure up, instead of asking for a reason as to why we failed, he gives us mercy. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us grace. He gives us freedom from sin. Jesus gives us 
His very righteousness that is unearned and freely given. We are adopted in, undeserving, imperfect, prone to sin. We, us in this room, have been given Jesus' righteousness. Now, here's, here's what I think. I think some of us in this room are a little bit resistant right now. I like, I, I don't know about that, Doug. I don't know if I earned it yet. I can't accept that, Doug, just yet. You know, I, I don't know enough, or I haven't, I haven't been in church long enough, or I haven't really been praying like I should have. I haven't been reading my Bible like I should. Or, you know, I've, I've been stuck in this same sin pattern over and over again. I, I don't know if I could accept Jesus' righteousness for me right now. Like, I, I don't know if I'm good enough for that yet. If that's you, if that's your thought pattern right now, you are exactly the person that this word is for. You are exactly the person that this gift is for. If you find it easier to relate with the part of being fallen, with being broken, if you're like, yup, that's me, I'd be comparing, I'd do all this, then this gift is for you. I think the barrier of entry for some of us is that I think some of us grew up in environments where we were told that we didn't measure up and that we had to work hard to earn the love, to earn respect, to earn validation. Maybe it was a parent that you felt like you always had to impress, that was just never satisfied with whatever effort you gave. Um, this is a live memory for me right now. Um, there, there was one part, there's, there's one, one time, like I was like maybe eight years old, um, I came home with, with a test grade, right? I was like, got like a 92. Yes, I did it come home with the 92 and my dad looks at me and goes, can't you do better? That stings. And I think some of us can relate with that. May we grow up with parents that we had to live up to their expectations of, of us. We had to prove ourselves as good enough. We had to prove that we were worthy enough or deserving enough to receive their affection. That if, if only if I come home with 100, if only I come home with an A+, a plus, then my parents will be proud of me. Or maybe like me, you come from a church environment that was all about practices, attendance, and involvement. For us growing up, the more you did, the closer you were to God. So at one point, I was like the church drummer. I was like youth leader. I was a Sunday school teacher. I'm like secretary, treasurer on the side. Like, and people are like, man, this guy's thriving in the Lord. You know, he's growing. And I'm over here exhausted, burnt out, like dying. And, and on the flip side, right, the less you did, the further away you were from God. So even if you came into church and you did your due diligence as, as a member, you came in, you tithed, you worshiped, you had an encounter with God. And if that's all you did, Ooh, we got to pray for brother. Like, he's far from the Lord. He's not serving. He's not active in church. He's not doing nothing, right? Like, and, and that's, that's the standard that I grew up with. And that's a voice that follows me to this day. A voice that tells me that I'm not good enough. That I'm not doing enough for God. But what does the text say? Unlike those voices from our past, or maybe the voices that are still around us, Jesus does not condemn us. Jesus isn't asking us to do better or to strive. Jesus isn't shaming you or calling you a failure because you don't meet his standards. 
Instead, he takes your shame upon himself. Instead, he takes your failures upon himself. And in return, he gives you an A+. Not because you earned it. Simply because he loves you. We have been justified. We have been made clean. We have been made righteous out of a loving sacrifice. Undeserved. Freely given. All we need to do is respond. All we need to do is say, yes, Jesus, I accept this gift and I want to live a life worth following you. How do we respond? How do we do that? Paul ends this chapter by saying, do we abolish the law? No, we actually uphold it. How how do we do both? How do we let go of the law and also uphold the law? It feels like this conundrum, but Jesus has an answer in Matthew 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is how we live out our days. This is how we uphold the law. This is it. All of the law, all of what it means to follow Christ is here. And I know it. I I feel the resistance of, this is too easy. This is a trap. Right? Like, what do you mean? Like, I, 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 I get you. I'm here with you. I hear the voices from my past saying, no, 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 no. You also have to, I came from a Hispanic church, right? So that's the voice that's there. No, no, no. You also have to, like, you have to do this. You have to do that. You have to serve this. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this. Jesus makes it very clear. We're hearing this from who we believe to be God himself telling us this is it. Love God and love people. If we do those two things, we fulfill the entirety, the entirety of the law. Not from a place of proving our righteousness, but because we are already redeemed. So this verse actually becomes our gauge. It becomes our barometer. If we were to examine our lives and our practices today and actually take inventory and say, am I loving God and loving people? And if the answer is yes, regardless of what you do, then be encouraged today. If you can look and examine your life and say, yeah, like I I see myself. There's evidence. There's fruit. I am loving God. I am loving people. Be encouraged And we're going to have time to let go of those voices from the past that would seek to tell you otherwise. But if you find yourself seeing like, I actually I'm engaged in some practices that aren't leading me to further love God and love people, then there's opportunity to surrender that and to let that go. And to maybe ask God the question, God, what does it mean for me today to love you and to love people? And this actually looks different and unique for all of us. Some of us here are artists, we're architects, we're in the medical field, we're in education, we're in finance. Some of us are single, some of us are married, some of us have kids, some of us have no kids. Do you see the diversity that's here and how almost ludicrous it is to compare ourselves to each other? We're all in different places in life. And this is the beauty of the kingdom of God. So what it means for you right now to love God and love people might look wildly different than the person next to you. 
And that's okay. This is why we're here together as a church community. We get to love God and exemplify the diversity and the beauty of God in the ways that we seek to love and glorify him in everyday life. I'm going to invite the worship team to start coming up. Here's the good news for us this morning. God doesn't shame you. God doesn't call you a failure. He knows that you've fallen short. He knows that you've sinned. And what does he do? He clothes you with his very righteousness. I love the story of the prodigal son. When the son comes back home, scripture says that the father rejoicing actually takes off his own cloak, takes off his own robe and puts it on his son. Takes off his ring and puts it on his son. This is what Jesus does to us. Undeserving. We don't deserve it. Yet Jesus himself removes his very righteousness and puts it on us. He takes upon himself our shame and our failure and frees us to love him and love people. So here's my question for us this morning. What does it mean for you today to love God and love people? We are righteous if we put our faith in Jesus. We are not bound to the letter of the law. In fact, we fulfill it by believing in Jesus' atoning sacrifice and in response, loving God and people. This is what it truly means to be a follower of God and in relationship with him. Our practices flow from relationship and love for God and not as a means to get them. If we can make this shift, church, if we can release comparison, guilt, and shame, we would be a people beaming with the love of God. We would love and engage with God without dragging our feet or fearing that someone's going to punish us or scold us, but knowing that there is mercy, love, acceptance, forgiveness on the other side. We would seek ways to love people in our office space, at the playground, at our coffee shops, in our medical rooms, we would be a people so free from comparison that we are free to love fully. So I want to give us a minute before we respond to musical worship, before we take communion together, to ask God this one question. God, what is one way, just one way, I can love you? And the second question, God, what is one way I can love people in this season of my life? Let's take 60 seconds. And I'll come back and pray for us. as we ask God for one way that we can love him and people. I want to invite us 
to act on it. Not as a way to earn God's love, but as a way to extend his love further in us and around us. And I want to invite us to also maybe check out the prayer team this morning. For some of us, if we're still wrestling with that sense of guilt, shame, voices from our past that are informing our lives today, I want to invite you to receive prayer. Or if you feel a little stuck of like, I'm not sure of what it means, you know, to love God, to love people. Can, can somebody help me out? Our prayer team would love to pray for you. Or if any of the words from earlier resonate with you, please check out the prayer team. Let me pray for us, and I'm going to invite Denise up um, to lead us in a time of communion. Jesus, we thank you that even now you are releasing us from guilt and shame or from false sense of religiosity. Jesus, thank you that you take upon our failure, our shame, our guilt, and you clothe us with your righteousness. Lord, would you free us to love you and to love people without striving, without wanting to prove ourselves to you, but knowing that we are already loved by you. God, extend your love further in us and around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.